0: Hello everyone, I am CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Terry Gamble about the Eulogist, a novel set in the early nineteenth century United States. This novel addresses many interwoven themes, among them immigration, abolitionism, revivalist Christianity, and the position of women. But above all, it is the story of Olivia Givens, a young woman and wonderfully complex character who arrives from Ireland in 1819 and lands in Cincinnati, Ohio, as the city is just coming into being. When we meet her, though, Olivia is looking back on her life. Anything untethered washes down this river. Old stoves, filled trees, derelict cows. A spring surge might bring a smorgasbord of candle crates and errant knickers, while autumn eddies snatch a mud cake doll or blackbird, its wings splayed and broken. Just last week, one of Mary's girls informed me a house had flowed right past. How big a house? I asked. I told her I once saw an entire encampment that had washed away, carrying with it men, women, and children. I once saw a riverboat explode, raining body parts on the Kentucky and Ohio shores. Long ago, I saw the body of a man fleeing slavery who drowned while trying to reach the other side. But people tire of my memories. I am 86 and nearly blind, and people wrongly regard me as a spinster. I overheard Mary promising her husband that as soon as I'm gone, they'll move to California. California? It seems the Givenses are always pushing west. Over 70 years since we left Ireland. Poor Ireland. Impoverished by the falling crop market. If you happened to be on the banks of the Ohio in 1819 when we drifted past... "'you would have seen a father, a mother, and three children, "'with the erect bearing of the privilege. "'Look more closely, and you would have noticed our frayed clothes. "'My brother's pants too short, "'my dress hanging limply on my ungenerous chest. "'At fifteen I must have looked a sight, "'having wailed across that ocean, "'a six-week passage of wailing and puking. "'And would you have wailed if you were pulled away from that bonny youth "'who had kissed your unkissed mouth with such urgency?' as to make you want to lie right down and unbutton something. And now, please join me in welcoming Terry Gamble. Hi, Terry. I look forward to talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Eulogist is your third novel, and like the previous two, it draws on elements of your own family's story. Before we talk about the present book, please tell us how you got started writing fiction, including a bit about The Water Dancers, your first novel, and Good Family, your second.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I I had done a lot of creative writing um, all the way, particularly through high school, college, but... I trace my roots of creative writing back to fourth grade. Practically, I found a, an essay in my mother's desk after she passed away that was about Bertha the beetle, and I remember the joy that writing gave me, even from an early age, to write, put something down on the page, and then have something to respond to, and that something you could build upon. Um, but I didn't really um, think that I could seriously write to publish until sometime after school and my first son was born my first child who was my son was born and I decided to take some time and do some things that I hadn't had a chance to do so I took a, a class with Anne Lamott and 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 when she back in the day when she was teaching and through that class I found a writing group and we've been at it for twenty five years, same group we're still together, and we're still writing. So they've seen uh, um, be birth these three books now. Um, the Water dancers is set both the water dancers and good family are set in northern Michigan. And I chose that setting because our family has a long multi-generational history up there, starting after the Civil War. Um, families from the industrial river towns would start to take train travel, and they would go to remote places. This was a new concept, this idea of a summer home or a getaway was really, really introduced after the Civil War, and they were amongst that first wave of families that said, we're going to take a hiatus and get away from their case. It was from Cincinnati, and in my mother's family, it was from Cleveland or Peoria I think and so those were not attractive places to be in the summer so they would go up to the lake where the air was fresher and uh, water dancers the genesis of water dancers was a character named Rachel Winnipe who is an orphaned Indian child Native American from the um, uh, tribe up there that Is reflective of what I saw growing up which was that the Indians were very set apart, very segregated, they were often confined to orphan schools or they were taken from their families and they were taught to uh, speak English, forget their languages, forget their spirituality. So I was really interested in the layers of Native American townspeople and summer people in that novel. And so I set that novel starting in the second world war when I think there was a big democracy shift a social upheaval in this country. Um, My father who had been sort of raised as a patrician spoke of his time in the army and said, it was like the first time that he really felt like an American among other Americans. And it changed his, his whole outlook. On, our, on himself and on our country, which I found very moving. Good Family, the second novel, also set in Michigan, borrowed probably more from family history, but it's still fiction. And, I, and when people ask, I say, you know, you can take, make a collage from family photographs and magazines and postcards and other, other materials, and you rip them up and you rearrange them and you glue it together, and that and that's why Good Family is really a pastiche with some familiar themes that people say, oh, I know who that person is. But they don't really because it's 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 a composite. So those books were, I think I'm for now done with the setting of Northern Michigan and how I came to The Eulogist was after I had finished Good Family and published it. Um. And I was looking around for a subject, and I had already started another novel. But um, my father passed away. And as my sister and I were going through his belongings, we were getting a little tired of the amount of stuff we had to go through. And I was about to toss out these receipts. And then I took a second look at them, and they were receipts for exhumations. They were the receipts for the bodies of the first wave of my father's family that had emigrated from Ireland in 1819. And that spurred my interest about these people coming to America, starting this whole new life. And I knew so little about them other than sort of one storyline about how this one family member had made traction and prospered. But I didn't know how the family as a whole thought about this new country that they were becoming a part of and what were the attitudes they brought with them from Ireland and what they were going to make of America, particularly America literally divided right now by the Ohio River, the free states to the north and the slave states to the south.
0: That is such a fascinating detail. Um that it would be exhumation receipts among anything, you know, any other thing that, that they might keep and pass down. Um, I can see why you were drawn to it. I would want to know about those people, too. Now, when we think of immigrants from Ireland in the 19th century, we tend to think of Catholics fleeing the potato famine. Um, but that's not the given story. Uh, tell us who they are in terms of their social background and what causes them to leave their homeland.
1: Yeah, Well, that's a really good point. And I think people always assume they say, oh, yeah, my family came from Ireland, too, and it's, it's, it's most often they're talking about their Irish Catholic family and that first wave of Irish Catholics who did come a little later with the potato famine. Um, Olivia, the narrator of this book, says early on, we were Ulster plantation Irish, which is to say that we were Scots. And so the Ulster plantation, plantation Irish were under King James had come from Ireland or even from, from England. And they were colonists of Ireland. You know, we hear about the Troubles in Ireland. Well, that would have been my ancestors. They were Protestant Irish. And so they left earlier than the Catholics, probably because they had the means to. It was, And it was at the same time under King James in the 1600s that they had come to Ireland. That's when we also see colonization in the... America North America and Jamestown, etc. So, 200 years later, this, this family comes to America and they come not because of the uh, potato famine, but there was a related famine, which is pretty interesting. A volcanic eruption had caused several summers in a row to not have sun basically. It was they were climate refugees. Uh, the sky was dark and crops failed and people in Europe were on the move. And then it was also the very at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And a lot of that war was fought by sea and there were embargoes. Um and therefore the family had prospered probably during the war, but after the war the embargoes were lifted and the prices failed. And so if you weren't the first son, you didn't have as much opportunity. So this is the voyage of a second son who brings his family to America.
0: Well, that's so fascinating. You know, I read that entire book, and I did not make the connection between uh, that and the explosion of Krakatoa. I think it was in 1816, right?
1: Right, right, right. And was it Krakatoa? I think it was another volcano. But but she wouldn't have mentioned it because they wouldn't really have known. Uh, there right. was no <laughs> Yeah, they just would have known that the weather was bad.
0: Right. No, that, that's a really good point. So soon after their arrival, um, first off, Olivia, who is your heroine, uh, is not happy to leave Ireland. Uh, we'll get back to her in just a second. But then once they get here, things almost immediately get worse, if that's possible. Um, their mother dies and their father leaves. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, they lose their parents to death and abandonment, which was not uncommon, evidently. Um, Their mother dies in childbirth, which is very common, and their father, uh, Josiah, is unable to support them. And so once they are of age, which would be uh, what we would probably consider young, you know, mid-teens, he decides he will do better on his own, and he... He promises he'll return, but he leaves them to make their way. And he kind of leaves them under the care of the eldest son, James.
0: So as I mentioned just now, Olivia is the heart of the eulogist. Uh, Tell us about her as a person and how she became your main character.
1: So... Yes, Olivia is the only daughter. She's the sister of, of James and Erasmus. She's plunked in the middle. She's the second child. And she was, when I first started writing this book, she was a, one of about three voices that emerged. And I was telling the book from different points of view. But the more I wrote about Olivia and the more encouragement I got from my editor to confine the point of view to, to hers, it became clear that her perceptions. Really, were unique, uh, uh, that, and it gave a unique slant on the world around her. Because here she is; she's a nineteenth-century woman at a time when there was something called really the cult, cult of true womanhood, which dominated, um, along with pious religion, um, and she finds herself neither particularly feminine nor feminine nor pious. So it's it's her take on things that I found so interesting because she's constrained and it made it somewhat difficult as a writer to deal with her constraints because it's hard to kind of inject her into certain scenes, but it also gave those scenes a little bit more um, clarity. And um, yeah, I, I would just say that her, her voice felt the most true to me. And so I had to let go of those other voices and then find a way to get those
0: Happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. She really is a fascinating character. Uh, I would imagine her her constraints are in some ways increased and in some ways lessened by the fact that at least when she's young and by the standards of, as you p- point out, you know, perfect womanhood, she's poor. And so she doesn't have those options. And yet. There's just something about her personality that lets you know that she wouldn't, uh, how should I put this, she wouldn't fare well in a traditional Victorian um, marriage or view of, you know, within the, the traditional Victorian constraints on womanhood, even if she didn't have this additional issue of being parentless and poor.
1: Parentless and poor, yeah. Um, she's very reliant upon her brothers, particularly her elder, her older brother, Um but as her older brother says to her, um, you suffer from opinion. And <laughs> um, I, I love that because uh, I think that even to this day, sometimes women who suffer from opinion get blowback, right? And we've been seeing that in in um, in some double standards, I think, in, in the way women are discussed compared to men, and particularly if they're smart and competent, capable you know ambitious so she has to constantly walk the line of whether she you know to try to be appropriate because she she is dependent on others she can't really make a living in a, in a way that would be acceptable um, and because she does come from a family that was while not enormously wealthy it, they were educated and they probably were what we would call today upper middle class although there was no such thing at the time um, and so they don't have any material wealth at this point, but they do have this background and this sort of ex- expectation of a standard of living. Um, but s- her one suitor finds very quickly that she is she's a, she's a difficult person, and he's not interested in her once she um, she pushes back on him a little. And it takes a person who is much more interested in her intellectual life to truly appreciate her. And that's, and that's Silas Orpheus, the doctor.
0: Right. Yes. We'll get to him in just a minute. So first off, tell me a bit about James, because as you mentioned, he yeah, he's the one who actually does quite well in a business sense, ultimately, and he supports the, uh, his two siblings. Um, how would you describe him in terms of his personality and his role in your story? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love James. I can really see him in my mind's eyes as sort of a stocky, you know, that kind of stocky Irish guy. Um, uh, if, uh, If Olivia suffers from opinion, I would say James is burdened with responsibility. He didn't sign on for it, but there he is. He's left with his two younger siblings. He's very much the eldest son. Uh, I, I like to think that had his family been able to stay in Ireland, he would have received a much higher education. He probably would have gone to Trinity. He would have been a man of property. But once those hopes were dashed, he has to adjust by being resourceful. And in his own way, he's an opportunist. And Cincinnati was just, you know, ripe with possibilities for opportunity opportunists at this time because it was it was burgeoning and you know just coming into his own so he he takes opportunity by it sounds kind of not ambitious to us but he becomes a candle maker and everyone needed candles then that was it that was your lighting and so uh he, you know, he's trying to be the best candle maker with the best price and the best product, just as anybody would be now with their, with whatever it is they're they're selling. And um, and then he supports subordinates many of his dreams in order to provide for his family. You know, and eventually it means marrying somebody that he doesn't, he's not particularly enamored of. But he he's a pragmatist.
0: Well, that segues nicely into the other brother, who is the reason that James ends up marrying somebody pragmatically instead of the woman that he loves. Tell us about Erasmus.
1: Erasmus is not a pragmatist, or well, let's say he does have a little streak of pragmatism that expresses itself very, very differently. And he too is an opportunist, but it, again, that it doesn't express in responsibility, and just the opposite. He's the youngest brother, and. It was um partially because he gets sick on the voyage over in this in in coming down the Ohio River, he becomes delirious with probably cholera and it starts having almost religious visions at a time when everybody was very interested in religious visions. You know, the, the um there was a the whole second great great awakening happening and people were finding omens in everything. And so he arrives in Cincinnati and thinks he is saved. You know, he thinks he's sort of meant for a special purpose. But as a result, he never he never uh, focuses on anything that that actually results in in making a living. He's a disaster when it comes to real work. Um, He likes to drink. He likes to womanize. And he's always in debt. And um, then he finds a preacher who is preaching a a form of theology that is particularly interesting for Erasmus, because this preacher says, you can be saved through your own actions. And that is fairly new. That That was a form of Methodism. And... These, this is a family that was probably Calvinist in their in their Presbyterian upbringing, which meant that you were either chosen or you weren't. You were a, you were elect or you were a reprobate. And Erasmus is clearly a reprobate, and then he's told, "You can change that," and it also offers him a wonderful opportunity to be on the road because. Um, Methodists were itinerant preachers at the time and they would you know you talk about the preacher riding into the wilderness that was him and so off he goes and because of his because of his travels it changes the scope of their their world because of what he experiences both along the northern side of the Ohio River and to the south, which is Kentucky.
0: And he is actually a quite successful revivalist preacher, at least for a while. Um, but he doesn't stick with that either. It's not in his nature. But for at least for a while, he's, in fact, I think because he's a handsome young man, he has...
1: Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he's got, yeah, the women love to hear him preach.
0: And he steals the girl that James is in love with. We yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I'm sorry, but it's not that far into the story, so we won't say what no, else happens. No, no. Um, but we will say that um, it's through uh, Erasmus and Erasmus's wife that uh, Olivia meets Silas Orpheus. And Silas is really a kind of crucial link between the part of the story that's about early 19th century Cincinnati and the issues of women and the other major theme of the book, which is uh, the situation on the other side of the Ohio River, which you mentioned, uh, where slavery is still legal. And this is 1819, 1820, 1830, so it's not going to become illegal anytime soon. And so tell us about... How uh, Olivia meets Silas and what their relationship comes to mean for her, as far as you want to go, um, you don't have to tell sure. the Sure. Yeah.
1: So the so Silas is his his full name is Silas Orpheus, and I don't know that name came to me just right as I started writing about this family from Kentucky, and it's you know it's not a name that I. I was familiar with, but of course, we think about Orpheus going to the underworld. He is a medical doctor, and he is um, uh, one of the things that he's doing, how he, how he does his research is by uh, through the autopsies of bodies, which is illegal. And I'll get to that in a second, but the way that Olivia meets him is because Julia, who marries Erasmus, is giving birth, and on the night that she's giving birth, Silas can't make it because there's been, in fact a race riot that night, and there was a race riot in the summer of 1829. Um, there's uh, Cincinnati broke out in violence um, between mostly the Germans and the and the free blacks, and so he's tending to the injured, cannot attend the delivery, and he sends his girl, who's a who's sort of a midwife, um, probably not a trained midwife. And um, she's African-American and Olivia finds out later that she's in fact a slave belonging to Silas's brother who lives in Kentucky. And that she's on loan to Silas as an, as an assistant. So this is her first, Olivia's first um, meeting with, with Tilly, this one character who's a slave. And, um, and then she meets the doctor the next morning when he comes to their house. And he already has a, an impression of Olivia from an earlier event where he, he she stood in support of a controversial um, point of view at a lecture, and he had observed for her, but she had not met him. And he's intrigued with her mind, and he eventually um, he asks her if she would be interested in accompanying him to an autopsy, and of course... Because she is so curious about the world, she seizes the opportunity, and that starts their relationship.
0: So you mentioned uh, Tilly, the girl. Um, she and Handsome, uh, who is another slave, are part very much part of the story, this part of the story. I don't know how much you want to st- to tell us about them, but there is this sort of link between them and Silas and Erasmus and, of course, Olivia through them. Um, can you fill them in a little bit about why you decided to go into this element of life in the area? Yeah, well, both,
1: both Tilly and Handsome came to me pretty early on, and, and that was actually when I was still writing through other points of view, and I wrote through Erasmus's point of view of how he was... Uh, in Kentucky and he um, becomes ill with malaria and he has had been preaching um, along uh, to some of the southern farms and plantations and he has some um, he'll even preach to the slaves if they'll listen and he has been run off from one of the from one of the farms for inciting um Slaves to uh, to riot, and you know, even though he was just quoting some story about Potiphar in the Bible, anyway, one of the the slaves that has heard him preach is, is emboldened to confront the overseer about his harassing his woman, and we find out later that that was Handsome, and as a result, Handsome is punished and sold off, and um, he escapes, and he comes upon. Erasmus, who's sick uh, with malaria. And Erasmus has to make a decision at that point. Does he, does he help Handsome in his escape? Or does he return him to his, his, the family that owns him and also the woman he's married to? Um, Tilly, as we find out later, is not too much later, but this, this young woman who's on loan to Silas Orpheus is a relative of Handsome's. She was based on a different character that's actually a true character, uh, kind of a composite of, um, first of all, Eliza Potter was a woman who was a hairdresser, a free hairdresser in Cincinnati, and wrote what is considered the first uh, book by an African-American. And through hairdressing, um, black women were often able to make a living. And Tilly has a knack for hairdressing, probably a better hairdresser than a midwife. And um, uh, the other the other character from which I drew to create Tilly was um, a woman named Matilda, who was actually um, a defendant in a case that was tried by Sam and Chase. He was defending Matilda's right to be free. And... She was actually also on loan to a, fa- a family in Cincinnati, and she was pulled back to the South. Sam and Chase lost, lost the case.
0: So we probably don't want to go too much further into the novel. Um, but since, I mean, characters are, I think, the most vital part of any novel, but they're particularly wonderful here because they're all very complex people. Um, and I really enjoyed. The novel itself how do you as a writer develop characters i'm always fascinated how other people do it because each of us has very much her own style
1: well it's you just have first of all you have to write you have and i i have to remind myself of this constantly um that characters don't don't usually appear fully developed on the page you know like Venus on the Half Shell, Um, they often, my characters usually start off a little, a little flat, maybe a little cliched, and I have to spend time with them. And Olivia, I've spent a lot of time with all of these characters, but particularly Olivia, who I feel um, at times I was channeling with. And you know, I don't mean to sound woo-woo, but you know, you know, she would sometimes, you know, I would, I would sort of talk with her, and I'd say, well, what do you think of this, or what really happened, and how did you feel? And then putting it on the page and seeing if it rings true, and then reading it to others, these trusted readers I have with, I have in uh, this great writing group I mentioned, um, and getting feedback from them. And sometimes I want to force a character into a situation. Um, and then you find out more about them as you, as you, it's, it can, it can be a surprise. There were things I found out about Olivia, um, without, again, without spoiling the plot about, you know, she speaks at the very beginning about, you know, that she was torn away from a Bonnie youth in Ireland. And there were things I found out about that Bonnie youth that just really weren't revealed to me until I, I went further into her life and understood um, her um, her attitudes and, and, and the kind of people she was drawn to.
0: That sounds very familiar to me. I mean, I basically do it the same way. I'm impressed, by the way, that your group has made it for 25 years. Mine has made it for yeah. 10 years, and that was very yeah. impressive. Yeah, that's a long time. and it's, It is. Yeah. You have to really trust these people. Mm-hmm. But I I love that part of it is how, I mean, mine all start out like these sort of blobs, you know, with uh-huh. fuzzy edges, and then gradually they they reveal themselves. I'll even think about a scene from the point of view of someone who's not telling it so that I can imagine how... Because you can get a different perspective than on on what the the main character is doing if you think about how it looks from someone else's somebody else, yes, mm-hmm.
1: exactly. That's great. Yeah, there's lots of little exercises to do, and 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 it's helpful. You know, somebody said to me, describe their front door, <laughs> or what's in their handbag. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So what about Cincinnati itself? Do you um did you have to do a lot of research on early nineteenth century Cincinnati?
1: Yeah, I did a ton of research, but it was really interesting to me to do that research. In fact, you know, I hadn't started out necessarily to write a historic novel, but um, that's a fun rabbit hole to go out of down, and you have to pull yourself out of it at some point and just and say, I I need to write a story that's not just a, an essay on on Cincinnati from eighteen nineteen to eighteen <laughs> forty. There's been a lot written. Um, I so I visited. Cincinnati. I do have some ties there. My father grew up there. my My family did settle there. so that part about the immigration is 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 based on on the family's immigration. Um, I also have a good friend I grew up with who married a man who's from Kentucky and had a farm in Kentucky in outside of Maysville, Kentucky, in Washington. And I have visited visited her many times over the years. and I find it so fascinating to see these areas that are so close together, it's just not, it's an hour's drive. Well, it would have been a lot longer by carriage or by boat, but they are, um, they influence, these regions influenced each other so profoundly, profoundly they were interconnected in business and in social interchange and um, common culture, and yet so different by virtue of, of being one a slave state and one a free state um but cincinnati is is such a fascinating little little city i guess it's not that little but it's it's at the time it was a burgeoning village and it was called the queen of the west it was like the last bastion before the frontier so it seemed to attract what would have been at the time kind of progressive thinking and people who were pontificating about you know religion and and marriage, and society, and science, and so you. there were constant lectures, constant theater performances, um, people trying out new forms of business, and industry was starting up with um, boundaries, and tanneries, and shipbuilding, and this teeming mass of humanity, I think, along the at this fortuitous bend in the river. So it was an easy place for farmers from the hinterlands to drive and slaughter their pigs and sell them into a market that included feeding the slaves in the South. So anyone who could seize upon a business model that incorporated the waste products of pigs had a ready supply, and that's how James gets into candle making. Um, I recommend visiting Cincinnati. I recommend visiting the Freedom Museum. It's so moving. Um, the, it's also called the Underground Railroad Museum, and then the, they also went within their Union Station, their train station, they're refurbishing it now. But there's an amazing, um, uh, amazing history museum there with first you know with primary materials and um, dioramas and reenactors. I love reenactors. I just love them. It's so fun to talk to.
0: Cincinnati is, I mean, it's just ignored, basically. It, it's hard to imagine it as being right there on the frontier and sort of the most progressive place around because it's since been dwarfed by Chicago and all of the other larger cities. They become
1: It becomes dwarfed by Chicago because meatpacking moves to Chicago once the railways, railroads uh, get developed. But remember, before the railroads, it really was predicated upon river traffic so it was the river that made Cincinnati what it is and then the Erie Canal and the Ohio Canal uh, you know well you're from Philadelphia and so those that was all influenced by the rivers Um, and yeah they did Tocqueville came comes to Cincinnati and writes about it Uh, Francis Trollope wrote extensively about it Mark Twain was really excited to see Cincinnati. I think they were all a little disappointed when they got there and that it was still kind of a backwa- backwater aspiring to be a major city. It, it certainly wasn't Philadelphia, and it wasn't New York. Um, but in its own way, it it was really embodying this whole sort of utopian vision of what it meant to be a city.
0: What about your novel? Are there any plot or character elements that um, we haven't covered that you would like to make sure get mentioned? So I think the takeaway for me from the novel, and, and, and
1: I've been asked if the, um, if I had intended to write a book that was so resonant of, of current events, and I, w- I had not intended that, but it was such a, such a constant surprise in doing the research for this book, how relevant it seemed to me to today's issues of immigration, of race, of the Me Too movement, of so women in society and religion, uh, the place that religion is playing in our discourse these days. I think that the stage was set in the 19th century and it's all of these issues are still being litigated today.
0: It's a little depressing that we haven't moved farther,
1: but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there.
0: So The Eulogist is brand new, uh, is going to release on uh, January 22nd. But of course, it's been in production for some time because that's how publishing works. Are you already uh, writing something new?
1: Um, I am writing something new, it's really hard to say if if it's going to go anywhere, Um, it's not set in the 19th century, I said I'm going to write a book that has electricity and even the internet, and um, we'll see, and then I'm working on a short piece for a friend uh, who's putting together a, a wonderful anthology.
0: Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Terry. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Terry Gamble about The Eulogist. Find out more about her at www.terrygamble.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and, in general, discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.